Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unplugged by Good Bets, where we provide the latest tips, strategies, and straightforward advice to underdog entrepreneurs and anyone who wants to leave a legacy by launching and growing a thriving social enterprise. I'm Nicole Jarbo from the Good Bets Group, and I'll be your host as we dive into the world of successful social entrepreneurship. Our episodes will be a hodgepodge. Some days we'll answer your most urgent startup questions, and others will interview founders you should know but we'll always provide practical and unfiltered advice to help you build a better venture faster. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me on today's podcast episode of Unplugged. I am super pumped to have a good friend and inspiration to me, Colin Seal here to talk to everybody. So without further further ado, let's, let's get to it. Colin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super pleased you're here. And just so everyone gets a little bit of behind the scenes, Colin and I did a fire podcast episode that didn't quite record. So this is round two. It's going to be bigger and better. But uh, that's a good reminder to all you DIYers out there. Make sure you always have a backup. All right. So Colin, tell us who you are and what you do. Well, whenever I get asked this question, it actually reminds me of the fact that as an entrepreneur that's in the arena, you know, getting your butt kicked left and right, I often, I often have to remind myself of who am I. Um, and a lot of it reminds me of just my experience being a father of a four-year-old and a six-year-old and watching Moana probably 300 different times over the last few years. and getting to the scene in Moana where everything is going bad and she's about to not accomplish the main goal she set off on this voyage in. And she, she starts to tell herself, like, you know, who am I? Like, I am, starts thinking about who her parents are, starts thinking about her ancestors. She starts actually putting out there in very real terms exactly how far she's come. And that kind of gives her that firepower to keep going on that journey. So um, when I think about my experience growing up in Brooklyn, New York, growing up as a first generation in this country, growing up on free and reduced lunch, growing up in a situation where my father was incarcerated for selling drugs, and thinking about how I've been able to use every single piece of that identity, every single bit of perseverance that comes from growing up the way I grew up to build and create this idea with my company, Think Law, where we're all about changing access to critical thinking so that all kids can truly have a fair shot at success in this world that we're living in today. That is always a really great place to start, Nicole. Who are you? Why are you here? All right, thank you. That takes me back to my first grade teaching days of way too many animated films. <laughs> but you know, Disney and Pixar, they, they have it locked down. They know how to tell a good story. Definitely. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, these are kids' movies. But when you start watching them from an adult perspective, you realize there's a lot of universal themes here. There's a lot of uh, lessons to be learned and applications to be made. So you learn to appreciate the simple and find the complexities within the simple often. Right. And the stories are the same, right? Just because just because we're adults doesn't mean we haven't lived these over and over and over again. So anyways, I appreciate it. That's why they're a behemoth company. And I've really been enjoying the baby Yoda memes on the internet. So thank you, Disney. Keep bringing us good stuff. Uh, all right, so tell us about ThinkLaw. What is it? What does it do? What's the approach of the work? Sure. So to understand ThinkLaw, I, I think it's helpful to really frame where I was at the time that ThinkLaw was developed as an idea. So I am a math teacher originally. Like I, I went to school for computer science, got caught up in educational equity, and when I joined Teach for America and taught middle school and high school math in DC, 
I kept on thinking about like, how do I create these spaces, Nicole, where stories like mine, where you can grow up in the struggle and end up receiving an excellent education that transforms your opportunities in life. How do I ensure that stories like mine are no longer exceptions to the rule? These random acts of pure luck in, you know, just being in the right place at the right time, or at least not being at the wrong place at the wrong time. How do you build systems and actually create a space where stories like mine are truly boring? Because every kid has a shot at being exceptional. And my path to doing that originally was thinking, I need to do it through education. And when I taught middle school, high school math in DC, eventually I ended up getting my master's in public administration and um, working in child welfare, going back into the classroom. But this time I didn't just teach in Las Vegas. I also went to law school at night. And something struck me about being in law school, because in law school, I wasn't learning the law. I was learning how to think like a lawyer. And this process of seeing things in different perspectives, asking questions to get information, making claims and backing it up with evidence, this process was exactly the same exact critical thinking skill set that I was required to give my kids in mathematics, that the English teacher down the hallway was trying to accomplish, that the science and the social studies teacher was trying to push our kids towards. So I figured, why wait until law school to introduce this framework, especially because not only is this a powerful method of analyzing the world, but if we can tap into our kids' sense of justice and fairness, or for middle schoolers, injustice and unfairness, and use that as a hook, that kind of rocks the core of passion, of intensity, to really give them the why to push through really complex problem-solving activities. So um, at the same time that I was thinking about think law as an instructional concept, I was practicing law at a big firm making pretty big bucks by teaching standards, at least triple my original teaching salary. And the interesting thing about education, Nicole, is that the second you walk out of education, everyone all of a sudden listens to what you have to say about education, which was interesting. So now I'm on the board for the Nevada STEM Coalition. I'm on the board for the Charter School Association of Nevada. And I am like getting toured around all these different examples of how we're preparing kids for the future of work. And what's so interesting is that when I'm seeing critical thinking in action, what I'm seeing is an after-school aviation club, or I'm seeing like this specialty magnet school where in the fifth biggest district of the country, we have a few hundred kids attending, or an honors program, or this international baccalaureate program. But all I'm seeing over and over again is this confirmation that critical thinking, as important as it is, is still being treated like a luxury good. And I started obsessing with this question of how might we create a space, create a system where all kids had equitable access to critical thinking instruction. And that was really where Think Law was born. So with Think Law, we help create that equity through a curriculum based off of real life legal cases and upper grades fairy tales and nursery rhymes in lower grades, going back to the power of children's stories, um, and a lot of practical training for teachers, for parents even, about how to unlock the critical thinking potential of all children. That's amazing. Okay. I mean, think a lot is an incredible, incredible tool. I mean, this idea of actually trying to bring critical thinking to the masses, if you will, I think it's something that lots of folks are talking about with deeper learning and competency-based learning. But as a former teacher, I don't see a lot of that actually happening in the classroom. And I want to pinpoint something that you, you just said. You know, right now, critical thinking, I think you framed it as a luxury. And so what, how do we think about critical thinking in terms of moving it from this idea of a luxury to a commodity? Is it just curriculums like this? Is it a mindset shift? Is it a culture shift? What are we missing to bring this broader scale? So what you're talking about right now, Nicole, is something that I think every person in the startup entrepreneurial space needs to do, which is begin obsessing with the problem. So 
I didn't come up with think love like, oh, I've got a radical solution that's going to transform everything. What I did is I asked, well, critical thinking is being treated like a luxury good. Why? Why? And I've had a chance to ask that question, why, from everybody, from a first-year teacher to a principal to John King, the former Secretary of Education. And when you start really digging down to why, the number one reason, the number one reason that critical thinking isn't being taught to all kids is not enough educators truly believe that critical thinking can be taught to all kids. When we dig in a little bit deeper to that, we find that even when educators believe generally that all kids can generally access critical thinking, educators don't necessarily believe that themselves as educators can be the key to unlocking that. And even if they believed that all kids could think critically, even if they somehow believed that they could be the difference maker, they don't necessarily know how to do it. So a lot of me focusing in on a very practical, easy to implement solution was this idea that no, not enough organizations are focusing in on the how. And when I say how, I'm talking about what does closing the critical thinking look like to a ridiculously overwhelmed teacher on a random Tuesday in December. That's what I'm talking about. That's the level of precision that I wanted to have when it came to giving teachers a solution to close the critical thinking gap. So that's really some of the main barriers from, from, from giving access to critical thinking to all kids. But the cool thing about it is when you start really focusing in on the problem, like if the belief gap is a problem, well, what do we know about belief? We know that some people walk by faith, others can only walk by sight, which means that seeing is believing, which means that if you can give teachers repeated opportunities to see that they have the power to unlock the critical thinking potential of all children, and when I say all, I'm talking about not just your A-plus high-performing children, not just your gifted and talented children, not just your children in the honors and AP classes, but kids that are your quote-unquote struggling learners, kids that are quote-unquote your behavior kids. When you start to see what happens when you light a fire under these children, you cannot help but to step back and realize, whoa, there is so much untapped potential here that I had no idea existed. And that muscle memory, those experience, they cannot help but start to inform your mindset, your shifts of attitude, and the way you approach your day-to-day -day instruction, no matter what subject you're teaching. All right, so you talked about the how, and that makes, makes a ton of sense to me. But I wanna go back to something that I feel like you skimmed over because this is unplugged and we're gonna get real and raw, but I wanna talk about this idea of belief and bring it even, bring it closer to what do we do believe about the students that you care about most, right? And that's, that's not the best question to ask for this, I think a better way to think about it is, you know, you and I have had conversations about going to Forbes events and big tech conferences and things like that. And often we're seeing white tech founders heralded as these amazing disruptors. That's not the same view that low income kids, communities of color, folks are not looking at their quote unquote disruption in the same way. Can you talk to us about that and how Think Law, you know, pushes the boundaries in terms of what we can believe? Because of racism, we live in a world where similar characteristics are treated very differently based off of who is exhibiting those characteristics. For instance, you can be a Fortune 500 CEO who is praised because you go against the grain, because you march to the beat of your own drummer, we even look at titans in tech and we, 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 we celebrate them and call them literally disruptors. Yet we're consistently kicking poor black and brown kids out of classes for being disruptive. 
when I think about the transformational impact of shifting our belief, I like to share the story of me being the first grader that was always in trouble. Because this is how the cycle used to work, Nicole. They would give me some random worksheets. I'd finish in two minutes, start acting a hot mess in the classroom, and they'll punish me with, with more worksheets. And I realized that all the trouble I got into for being out of my seat and all the drama that I caused, everything shifted. Everything shifted. When I became one of 12 kids in my grade level to be a part of this gifted program in a school that I had to get bused to in Brooklyn, New York. And in this school, what was so interesting about my second grade experience was that the same exact behavior I used to get in trouble for was now required. All of a sudden, it was perfectly normal and expected that I consistently questioned the teacher. It was perfectly normal and expected that I walk around the classroom and interact with my peers. So when I start thinking about how we reframe brilliance, how we reframe like what it means to be an academic success story, it requires us to put to rest a lot of the myths around upper white middle class models of what it means to be a good student. And we need to start really thinking about like, what, what does learning look like? We talk about cultural responsive teaching, like let's talk about culture. Let's talk about the idea that if you step into any black church in the United States of America and it's silent, there's some weird stuff going on. That pastor must be having a real <laughs> off day. It doesn't make any sense. So if you walk into a classroom and it's completely silent, you've got to scratch your head and wonder what's really going on here because this isn't really the way that kids learn. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of belief work. In fact, Nicole, I've come to an understanding that to make any meaningful shift with educational equity that causes an actual heavy lift, for people to do, it has to be equal parts evangelism and information. Because you can't win over their minds until you've won over their hearts. Colin, thank you for that. You know, I'm thinking as someone who is not in the classroom anymore, um, I still know a lot of teachers in terms of my own personal and professional networks. Uh, how do people like me help advocate for critical thinking and you know it's not just critical thinking right it's more broadly speaking like the ways to uh, get to equity get to equal opportunity how does someone like me advocate for that in a way that makes sense one of the biggest missing pieces when it comes to educational equity is a really odd shift that has kind of dominated the conversation really since No Child Left Behind days. We've become so obsessed with languages around closing the achievement gap that we've completely put to the wayside an entirely different idea around shattering achievement ceilings. If we start to raise a conversation that in education today, we are undoubtedly leaving genius on the table. When we start to look at the work, there's a center out of Johns Hopkins University called the Center for Talented Youth. Mm -hmm. And they have a project where they talk about the excellence gap. And they point out in this project that 25% of students who are deemed high achievers in elementary school kids that are gifted and talented, kids that are more than one grade level ahead on their state assessments, 25% of kids from low-income backgrounds are not even applying to college. We are leaving genius on a table. And what's so interesting, Nicole, I don't care what school you're in, if it's rural, if it's urban, if it's affluent, if it's high poverty, you ask a school leader in that school to tell you about the kids that get in trouble all the time. And they almost always start with this young man 
this young lady is so smart, so smart. But they, they can't seem to make the decisions right to keep themselves in class. And you start recognizing like, okay, like this idea of kids that are unquestionably brilliant, but find some way to make a lot of bad decisions every single day. We're like, okay, like this critical thinking potential there, we're not finding a way to tap into it because we don't seem to care a whole lot about leaving genius on the table. We seem to be much more concerned with this idea of closing an achievement gap versus shattering an achievement ceiling. Mm. Because if we were honest about the achievement gap, we would admit that white kids who are not coming from poverty aren't actually doing that great either. There's nothing to write home about in terms of the achievement in this country when it comes to white students who are not in poverty. So it shouldn't really be just about closing the achievement gap. It's what do we do about all this excellence, about all this genius that goes idle, that goes untapped? How much can our society benefit from maximizing the potential of all this brilliance that is already out there. And this is something that if I can ring a bell, if I had a megaphone standing on a street corner, this is what I would yell out day in, day out. We need to talk about the extent to which we're leaving genius on the table in today's education system. Yeah, I mean, it's super powerful. Colin, why do you care about this this much? I care about this because I understand how meaningful educational experiences can disrupt generational poverty very quickly. And in a nation that is, you know, it's a really weird term to say like majority minority, but our public schools are majority minority. They're also majority <laughs> students on free and reduced lunch as of 2016. So we're in a world where like, for all we know about like, you know, the, 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 the divide and like wealth inequality, we also know that like the poor getting poor at a rate that is extremely fast. And we start thinking about like these numbers just kind of randomly, those are just statistics. I start thinking about for me, like what it meant, what it meant to live on a block where I can come back 30 years later and the same kids are still on the block. They're still there. We lived in the same neighborhood. We had the same experiences, but like, I was one of the lucky ones. I got opportunities that they didn't. And this idea of like having to live damn near perfect life, have all the chips fall in your favor. And that's your way to just get out of poverty. Just to get out of poverty, it takes dumb luck and great timing and great opportunities and people vouching for you in weird ways that are unexpected. Like that can't be the way that we develop a system. It can't be okay that I can go into juvenile detention and I could see kids looking at a think law lesson and debating and analyzing this real life legal case. And literally, I cannot tell the difference, Nicole, between these 17 year olds in juvie and 17 year olds that are in AP classes at one of the top high schools in the country. They're the same kid but they have entirely different outcomes in life because of choices that we make as adults to say that brilliance expressed this way is cool. Brilliance expressed this way is deviant. It must be punished. That's why this matters to me so much. Yes, I mean, I love that. I love this idea that the right folks are often not taking responsibility for what's happening with kids. And, and that's a conversation we have to continue to have. Um, and so I wanna move on. There are so many things I actually wanna talk about, but I wanna step back a little bit and hear about your path as an entrepreneur. Because uh, I know you got a, 
undergrad degree in computer science. You went on to do your MPA, you taught, you've worked at a big law firm, went to law school. I mean, there's so many things in your background <laughs> that are interesting that we could dig into. But I'm really curious about that decision to leave this role where you're getting paid a lot and it's what you've worked for in terms of, you know, prestige, occupation, things like that. How did you get from there to doing what you're doing now? So I can't believe I haven't thought about this before you just asked this question, but I think there's a very interesting connection between innovation and a necessity to innovate. If you start speaking to a lot of first generation uh, Latinx and Asian communities, there's somewhat of a myth sometimes that like, wow, like these communities are so entrepreneurial, they're always starting their own businesses. But in reality, a lot of that comes from the fact that because of racism and discrimination, they're not able to get hired, even though they have ridiculous levels of education in some cases, mm -hmm. in other countries, they're forced to innovate. So if I go all the way back to being a high school student who was double accelerated in math and having a mom that was so broke that I couldn't get a dollar to get in a dollar van sometimes on my way to school. So everyone from New York, from Brooklyn to Queens, you know that dollar van lifestyle and what that's all about. But I had to tutor kids in the neighborhood in math just so I can have some spending money to be able to take a cab to the train station, like a dollar van to the train station and buy lunch because my school lunch was atrocious. So when I think about like the drive between necessity and innovation, and I think about like all the ways that my mom modeled that for me at home as well, right? Like, you know, figuring out ways to get my uncles and other people or other dudes that were trying to holler at her to buy us groceries, like so that we don't go hungry. Like, figuring out some sort of way to hustle, to get, to access resources. It's really the same sort of thing that motivated me with Think Law. So very practically, um, very specifically, when I'm at my law firm, I had a moment, a moment of super clarity where I had spent the first two and a half years at my law firm feeling so great, feeling like I was on a pedestal because of the letterhead that was on my emails, because of the logo that was on my business cards. Two and a half years in, when I'm on all these boards and I'm getting asked to speak at these things and I'm starting to like be pushed to be a part of client meetings and I'm sitting second chair at two different trials and I've taken over 20 depositions. And for anyone that understands big law, that doesn't happen to junior attorneys. I started to recognize it wasn't about the letterhead on the email or the logo on the business card. It was my name. It was me. I used to be really ashamed of my upbringing. You know, my dad was incarcerated. We grew up in free and reduced lunch. My like place that we lived, I used to be embarrassed to show it to people because, you know, we had stuff all over the place. It always seemed so small. But everything I've been able to accomplish in life isn't despite the struggle, it's because of it. It's because of it. So my name actually matters. My name is part of like what's adding value to them. And when I started making that shift and realized that I was adding this value, I started to view my role there very differently. I started to understand that I was part of a bigger solution. And this wasn't really like some sort of like lifelong dream of mine to be at this law firm. It was a means to an end. And that end was that same problem I cared about. It was about access and opportunity for all kids. So when I got laid off from that law firm, um, I had an opportunity to work at some other law firms, but I said, you know what? Let me chill for a second. Let me think about what I can do. I got a little bit of severance money here. I've always made a choice since speaking to uh, Catherine Cortez Masto when she was the Attorney General of Nevada before she became our first US Senator, who's a, a Latina. Um, she spoke at an event at the law school and she said, if you really care about public service, you need to make sure that you save money. Don't go out and buy the fancy cars and the house you can't afford 
because then your high paying law job is gonna become like golden handcuffs. You wanna have freedom to move where you wanna move and do what you wanna do and do work that really matters. You can't lock yourself up with uh, lots of debt. So I made it a point. I never got a new car. I drove a 95 Civic and eventually upgraded to a 98 Accord. And this was in 2015. So, I mean, the, 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 the legal secretaries and paralegals all had nicer and newer cars than I did, but I didn't care because I didn't want to have a car payment because I wanted that flexibility. Um, on top of that, I also realized that when you start something, you can't be all secretive about it because you're ashamed of afraid or of looking bootleg. Don't be afraid. Like everything is bootleg until it's not. Everything mm -hmm. is unproven and untested until it's not. Um, and what better time to get people to be a part of something than at the very beginning. People are actually very excited to be the early adopters for something that you're touting as transformational. So I remember um, writing one lesson in Microsoft Word that involved uh, a boy pulling out a chair and his aunt and getting sued for it. Sent it out to about 100 teachers that I knew, got their feedback. I saw some of them teach it in action. I was able to like make tweaks to it. Then I wrote another lesson. Then I wrote another lesson. And then at the point that I had three lessons written in Microsoft Word, I had $15,000 in contracts for a curriculum that did not exist. And I said, well, I guess I'm a curriculum writer now. That's the hustle. Yeah. <laughs> but it comes down to this too, like you gotta trust, you gotta trust the problem. You gotta trust that the problem that you're trying to solve is important enough. So like people, they didn't need to have some super refined solution. They cared that we were solving the right problem and making steps in the right direction in a way that was super humble, in a way that allowed them to be part of the innovation. So even though I didn't have venture capital, those first 10 partners that we had were essentially like our investors because they were putting money behind something that was totally unproven, untested, because they believed, they believed in what we were trying to do and found that it was worthy and found that it was worthwhile. And many of those partners are still with us today, five years down the line. So um, it's, not, it's not a trivial matter to find a problem that's both important and urgent. It's really the only way you can create sustaining change when it comes to social impact work. So that was really powerful, but I want to get real for a second. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> tell me what it was really like to be making six figures, have started to climb up that ladder to, I, I mean, I don't even know how much you made that first year. Sure. But like, what was that? What did that feel like? You know, I could tell you, I listened to I've always been a hip hop fan. I love rap, right? I have to say during that time, I probably listened to more rap songs about selling drugs than at any point in my life because the grind was real. The struggle was real. Like to go from making 120 a year plus bonuses to transitioning in my first year, I made $7,000 my first year that I was able to pay myself. $7,000 is basically what I made in salary. So I went back and I had a part-time job teaching uh, one class of Algebra two at a school that had just opened up in Vegas. Um, my second year, I was able to get a $34,000 salary. I was able to take a $34,000 salary and hire an executive assistant. Um, last year, I was able to take home like a $45,000 salary. And 45,000 is what it was after it was supposed to be maybe 51, but there are a lot of times I just couldn't pay myself because I was trying to make payroll and make other mm -hmm. things work. And um, this year I've been able to pay $60,000. And like the significance of 2019 is the first year I've never had to like skip paying myself or like reduce a payment for payroll for myself. Um, so I feel like I've made it even though I'm just reaching the halfway point of what I used to make as a lawyer. Here's the thing though. 
just some practical things to understand. One, I never stopped living like a teacher. So I've always been like pretty meager, pretty reasonable and not trying to be super uh, um, ridiculous about stuff. Two, I realized I needed a team. And if you really think about impact work and being able to like make an impact, like I could have set Think Law up so that I was making 150 a year and everything else revolved around that. I don't need to do that. I'm cool in a lot of ways financially. Like I have had, for someone that comes from a, a background where owning a home was never something I could have imagined, I've had the incredible good fortune, Nicole, to have wealthy white men who, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, gave me ridiculously positive and effective financial advice. I had a financial advisor in my mid-20s at a point when people were like, what are you even doing? You don't even have any money. But somehow, the decisions that I made when I was 21, when I was 25, when I was 28, has allowed us to be at a point where like, I'm cool. I'm cool if I don't like have a really big salary because I've been able to save so much money and other, like, you know, buy a house and sell it, buy another house and sell it. We're good. We're good because we've been disciplined and we've, like both my wife and I grew up not having much. So in a way we're kind of hoarders and we like are very paranoid about losing everything because we've been in that position before. Like I've been evicted before. Like I, I, I don't want to lose everything. So that same sort of paranoia around like hoarding resources, I think ends up being a benefit because we know how to like make things happen. You know, Tupac calls it making a dollar out of 15 cents, but it's really a fancy way to say we can optimize constraints and we can make it work. So it's been hard. I'm not going to kid you. It's been hard at times, especially when you're going paycheck to paycheck and, you know, just trying to figure things out. And sometimes you get the timing wrong and your account goes into the negative and you're like, oh no, what am I going to do? But like, you know, you keep that fire burning, you keep on going, you keep on pushing, and you remind yourself of who you are, how far you travel to get here, who your ancestors are, you just keep it moving. Colin, oh, I really appreciate you sharing that because that's what's real and it's something that we, we don't often hear, right? Not in the world of entrepreneurship uh, at all. Right, it's like all of a sudden someone had a brilliant idea and then they're on the cover of Fast Company. It's like, wait, what happened? <laughs> like, how did that actually happen? Right, and so I appreciate you being that upfront. I mean, I was talking about this that this morning with my partner, like it's not easy. I think folks have it wrong often when they think it is. So thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, I got a couple more questions. So. For folks sitting out there who feel like they're stuck in it, um, they don't feel like they're making enough traction right now, but they're committed to the work and they believe their work is good and they're actually making a difference. They've given up some sacrifices and they want to keep going, but they just feel like they can't figure it out. What is your advice for them to keep going, to stay motivated, to find that inspiration tactical or strategic piece that like they might need for this? What would you tell those folks? I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of times if you're stuck in a rut and you're not making traction, it's often the case that you've become hypnotized with your solution instead of being obsessed with the problem. The problem is the thing. The problem is always the thing. And at any point where things are not transpiring the way you are, you've got to go back and look at the problem. I'll give you a very concrete example. You know, we work with schools in 22 states. Part of what I want to do for 2020 is do less traveling for professional development. So I wanted to pilot a program where I actually hosted a workshop right here in Phoenix, Arizona, where I live, 
where I invited teachers to come to us instead of us coming to them. And a workshop is around using critical thinking strategies to um, hack the standardized test that we take here in Arizona called the AZM2. And I, I thought there was a lot of interest about this. I, I know from conversations that a lot of people really care about making sure their teachers have these skill sets. We hire a lot of teachers from out of state, even from out of the country. So understanding this test format and how to make kids prepare to excel on it matters. No registrations. Send out these emails, personalized messages, as on Facebook, still at zero. I can keep on sending out messages. I can keep on boosting my advertising budget. Maybe I can go further and send out like actual mailers. Maybe I could go around face to face and start handing out flyers to these people. But all of that makes me really solution focused. Instead of doing any of that, what I've been doing over the last two days is asking why to myself, asking why some of my partners are like, hey, why haven't you registered for this? And it's almost a little bit humiliating. I'm gonna be honest with you, right? Like, it's like, you know, why don't you call me? Like, why don't you call me back? Like, it feels like, you know, like a little desperate, right? But like, I'm really just seeking real feedback from the partners that I trust the most. And I'm asking them like, why don't you do this? And they're like, well, it is like kind of funky because I'm gonna send like maybe one or two teachers there and it's like, you know, I'm not sure of what the value is gonna be. Those one or two teachers can help me be helped, but I can't get a bunch of people to come on a Saturday. So I just don't really, you know, it's kind of a tough sell. I'm like, okay. Like what would need to happen to make it like less of a tough sale? Like what would add value? And through these conversations, Nicole, we're at a point now where we're being very explicit that this is a train the trainer session. And the whole purpose of this is to make sure that you get one or two teachers at your school who develop the expertise in this model so they can go back and do this exact same training as part of a staff meeting at your campus. We're gonna spread the love, we're gonna spread the knowledge so that the people that go there have an explicit way of bringing that back. And we'll see what happens from there. But there's a set of humility. There's, there's, there's a whole different perspective around like, I don't care if I look stupid, but I'm not gonna be so obsessed with my solution that I'm not gonna like step back and realize what are we doing wrong? It's always quite possible that you're doing it wrong. And we can't ever like put that aside. When your ego gets in the way, it's really, really hard to make traction. We've shifted and pivoted, Nicole, like 50 times since we've started, but we're always pivoting in the direction of the problem. Talk to me a little bit more about working on a problem as <laughs> intractable as like getting quality critical thinking education to all the people who massively need it. Like, how do you, I don't even, I can't even fathom how big that problem actually is. So how do you approach something that gigantic? You have to make it much less gigantic. There's actually a three-step process that I've been able to like articulate for how we approach this. Like step one is allowing the person that you're talking to, and, and this is always think thought about in terms of conversations with people, because like, I might live and breathe and dream and whatever when it comes to the critical thinking gap, but I'm, I, I can't presume that an administrator or a school district leader or systems leader is automatically thinking the same way. So like the first part that I try to do is like, how do we frame and or get the person I'm talking to to understand this problem as not just important, but also urgent? And a lot of times I would, I would start with critical thinking in particular, I'm like, okay, there's this critical thinking gap in education. We know that it exists. Like, why does this matter to you? Why does this matter? Like, how does this practically impact your day to day? And it's interesting what happens when you give people permission to think about a problem in more detail. They might think about the fact that like, we've got a school where the smartest kids in our school are in school suspension every single day. I've got a, 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 
a foster care program for kids aging out of the system where we've got to give them an hour and a half class in financial management, which is bogus, which is boring, which doesn't actually stick because, you know, an hour and a half is never going to make up for a lifetime of trauma. But if we can teach them to think critically, right, this transferable skill set of critical thinking, we can feel so much more confident that when they transition out of the foster care system, they'll be able to make decisions that move their lives forward in a much more positive way. We can start talking about high performing schools where they're like, yeah, my kids might be getting a five in AP physics and a five in AP calculus. But when they come over to my class, AP US history, and I ask them to write an essay about who the most influential figure is of the progressive era, they're like, okay, so who do I write about? No, no, it's your argument. You, know, you, you do it. Like, okay, but where do I start? Like, the idea of making independent arguments and supporting that with evidence is super paralyzing in this context where people that are trained to be academically successful are really being trained to be very compliant thinkers. So as we start to personalize this idea around an urgent and important problem, we've now raised the stakes a little. We've lit a little bit of a fire underneath them. The second part is to talk about, okay, how might we implement this? Here's what we're thinking. Tell me all the reasons that this wouldn't work. Tell me all the special tips that I would know that would make it work more effectively for you. So in, in the design stages of Think Law, Nicole, I sat down with people that told me gems. They're like, you know what, Colin, we've got this program at the Juvenile Detention Center where it's a research-based program that you've got to do these things in order. We've got kids coming in every two, three weeks, and they sit there for two months in a holding pattern. They can't start the program because it has to be done in a specific order. If you could create something that you could start anytime and it could be self-sustaining with like no prerequisites, that would be amazing. So now he's begging for a solution to a problem he didn't even know he had because we got into the nitty gritty of implementation logistics. Nicole, it is crazy how often things don't work simply because the logistics don't add up properly. Last but not least, it's the impact measure. And it's not even real impact, it's potential impact, which is if we were to partner together, what is the change you'd wanna see? How would you wanna measure the impact of success of this partnership? But when they start speaking to that success, when they start envisioning a different kind of world, a world where their important and urgent problems are implemented in the way that fits what their needs are, they're already bought in. Ooh, <laughs> there's so much into that. Cause I just want to go through every massive problem I have in my life and run that framework over and over and over again. Uh, it sounds actually pretty exhausting, but I just appreciate how you think about it in terms of that consistent approach. I think that's part of this too, right? Like how can you do something, continue to iterate, measure, optimize over and over and over again? Mm -hmm. so thank and, you for and, that. And, and, and to add to that, like, obviously, when you first get started, those are very personalized conversations with like individuals. But as you get bigger, as you start to expand, you start realizing like all those important, urgent problems, those become how you market to specific sectors. Like when we talk about think law in preschool versus high school, we're talking about a different set of problems. But it's the same message we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to make them understand that the critical thinking gap is important and urgent. Yeah. So that's actually a perfect segue because I want to talk to you a little bit about marketing. So you've, able, you've been able to be a contributor to Forbes Online. You've, I mean, you have a book coming out, which we're going to talk about, shameless plug. Um, you've been able to build an audience for yourself, giving folks these messages around equity, about how to better serve kids and communities of color, and how to expand critical thinking. Tell us a little bit about how you've been able to build that audience, and how do you think about spreading the message of Think Law? I'll tell you, this has been somewhat of a journey because when I first started Think Law, I remember, I remember like, you know, Think Law is the brand. Like Think Law, I, I really want to put the company first. And I remember I even used to tweet under the Think Law 
like at ThinkLawUS, like Twitter handle and tweet like a lot less like on my personal Twitter. And I realized at a certain point that there was something kind of blah about what we were doing. It just, it, 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 it connected to the people that kind of really knew the original Think Law story and knew my story, but it wasn't resonating in the way that I thought it would like to the masses. Um, and I got a set of feedback when I applied for a grant and was unsuccessful that they were reading my application and they just, they didn't really see any of like my story in the application. And I actually remember Nicole, um, doing uh, a social innovation contest and getting feedback after the contest that it, it really messed me up. The feedback was that um, I didn't have enough humility. I wasn't humble enough. Hmm. And I'm not gonna lie, like hearing that was a massive confidence killer, right? Because on one hand, I felt like I was playing with house money. I felt like for me to come as far as I have with my background, I'm like, if anyone deserves to feel confident in my own skin, it's me. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm already doing more than anybody could have imagined when I went to elementary school. Like, I'm good. Like, I feel great about that. But I started to question a lot about, like, how I approach things and how I say things. And I don't want to rub people the wrong way because here's the thing, Nicole. When they, tell, when they tell you as an entrepreneur of color, as someone that comes from poverty, that you need to be more humble, what I'm hearing them tell me is, I need to stay in my place. I need to recognize my place and stay in my place. And for a while, I kind of like listened to that. But when I started realizing that that was actually a disservice. When I started reminding myself that no, like it's not despite, it's because I'm like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna become even more audacious. I'm gonna be even more bold. I'm gonna be even more vulnerable to the point where almost every time that I do something in public, whether it's a, a, a PD session with teachers or a keynote address, anytime that I shift to a topic that I haven't actually spoken out loud before, I become emotional in public. And I am perfectly fine with that because this is real life stuff that is happening. And when I accept the fact that my story, my story is an exemplar of what happens when we decide it is no longer okay to leave genius on the table, the idea that I had 80 absences in high school, and for the entire ninth grade year, sorry, in, in, in just one year, I had 80 absences, and I failed multiple classes. So for an entire ninth grade year, and for half of my 10th grade year, no single adult in my school did anything to intervene? Not a one? Zero? That story needs to be told. I need to be honest. I need to share what it looks like, what it feels like to be an underachiever. I need to be very clear that there's this gap between potential and performance that played out for me in a very personal way. Those 12 kids that were in my grade level and the 24 of us total in my gifted class since it was a bridge class, three kids in this, middle school, in this elementary school picture didn't actually finish high school. Three out of 24 gifted kids didn't even finish high school. I need to tell these stories because if I don't tell them, who will? I need to lead with who I am because who I am makes, you, makes me uniquely qualified to lead this work. Thank you. Tell, tell us about the book. I mean, I have so many things I want to talk about, but I'm yeah. being really mindful of time here. And, no, no, for sure. Um, uh, but tell us about the book, yeah. So Proof Rock Press is a preeminent publisher of a uh, books regarding gifted education in the country. And um, the book is called Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework for teaching critical thinking to all students. And what we've done is we've taken all of the, 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 the elements that come out of legal practice and of law school, and we've codified it into practical instructional strategies 
for teachers in the classroom of all grades, levels, and of all subjects. So if you take something like mistake analysis, for instance, um, the way that we help you understand mistake analysis is like, yeah, like lawyers spend a lot of time looking at mistakes and digging into the root cause of those mistakes and ways that we can like, you know, frame a mistake a certain way. So instead of solving an equation, instead of saying, here, Nicole, do this equation. Oh, Nicole did it wrong. Let's fix Nicole's mistake. We would switch it up and we would say, okay, here's an equation. Here's how Nicole did it. Here's how Colin did it. They're both wrong. Which one should get more credit? Now we've changed it. Now we've put in conflict, drama. Now we've created a framework where you've got to make a claim, right? Nicole's is more right because you've got to back that up with evidence. You've got to think about the thinking that's going on. That's higher order metacognition. But it doesn't sound like critical thinking. It sounds like middle school drama. It sounds like a classroom where kids are thinking on their toes and being super creative. It sounds like a space where kids that say out loud, I don't do math, can feel super comfortable because they might not do math, but they do drama and conflict. And this is the kind of practical strategy that we're fleshing out throughout this book for a lot of different concepts. And um, yeah, it's already available for pre-sale on Amazon. And what was so cool is within a 48 hour period, it rose to be a number one new release in gifted education um, just off of the pre-orders alone. So really excited about that. Congratulations. That's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that because even the way you just framed it with a mistake analysis, I can think about how I can apply that across the board in my work like today. I mean, I obviously don't know exactly how to do that. I should buy the book and read it. But uh, just that reframing of how to approach a problem in a situation, I think is massively important. So thank you for writing it. Um, but I also like quickly would love to hear the story about how that came about. Sure. So going back to this idea of leaning into your story and who you are um, and just being real, I was at the Texas Association for Gifted and Talented. Uh, they have a leadership conference. Um, and at this leadership conference, I was, um, at a bar just ranting and raving about things that I rant and rave about various stories about equity. And just was, had a crowd of like six people that I didn't really know too well, but I was trying to convince them as to my viewpoints of the world. And I was doing it through stories. I was doing it through kind of like just connecting with their minds, with their hearts before I got into their minds. And all the time, there was an older white gentleman at the bar drinking by himself. And I could kind of tell he was eavesdropping, listening in. And at a certain point, he interrupts me and he says, hey, I, I, I just got to say, like, I've been sitting here listening and like, you, you tell some really amazing stories. Like, who are you? And I was like, I'm, I'm Colin Seal. He's like, Colin Seal? Like, I'm Joel McIntosh. Like, I heard eight different people talk to me today and tell me that you need to find Colin Seal and he needs to write for you. And now I understand why they were saying that. And from that, it came from an idea where like, I never thought in a million years that I would like write a book. But then once I sat down and wrote it, I realized the book was already written. And for so many people that are here in the arena doing this work, you already have the book. You really just got to put it down on paper and rock with it because again like the same sort of strategy the same sort of mindset that empowers me to ask like yeah like of course i'm uniquely qualified to lead this is the same thing that gets me to ask well why not me why not me why shouldn't i be the person that is breaking down the practical strategies necessary to close the critical thinking gap being that this has been my obsession. I mean, I think that's incredible. And headline, go to bars, y'all. Go to bars in places you don't know. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we got to wrap up. And we definitely need to do number two, because I think that there's so much around equity, how to support, how do folks with privilege support this kind of work. There's just so much to dig into. 
And I think I'm not allowed to actually say we're gonna do a part two because it's like the cheesy thing I keep repeating that my teammate does not want me to say anymore. So sorry, Veronica, but we're gonna do number two. Um, <laughs> so lastly, where can folks find you, Colin? Sure. Uh to follow our story with ThinkLaw, uh, you can check us out on Instagram at ThinkLawUS and on Twitter at ThinkLawUS as well. Our website is www.thinklaw.us. And to follow a lot of what I write about, tweet about, um, look at me up on Twitter at Colin E. Seal. It's probably the best place to find me. Awesome. And we'll make sure we put everything in the show notes and a link to pre-ordering your book as well. Uh, I just want to thank you so much from the depths of my heart. Thank you for being here. You're such an inspiration, I know, to me and other folks who are trying to grind and do this work well and fight for educational equity. So thank you so much. And we'll have you back for another round. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer or an idea for a show? Email us at hello at goodbets.co with unplugged in the subject line. If you want to learn more about GoodBets Group and our work, then visit us at goodbets.co. That's G-O-O-D-B-E-T-S dot C-O. Till next time.